This is a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. The town, as she saw it from her window, was peppered with winding streets, colorful houses with flower pots at their windows, sturdy wooden doors, long stairways, a church, and all the usual details that any guidebook would call quaint. Despite this, it was clear El Triunfo was not in any guidebooks. It had the musty air of a place that had withered away. The houses were colorful, yes, but the color was peeling for most of the walls. Some of the doors had been defaced. Half of the flowers in the pots were wilting, and the town showed few signs of activity. You just heard Frankie Corzo narrating Mexican Gothic, written by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. For the past two weeks, Behind the Mic has been talking about its best of audiobooks for 2020. And Mexican Gothic is right there, hitting the sci-fi fantasy horror best of list. Narrator Frankie Corzo is a younger actor who's fairly new to the audiobook scene, but she has made her name known very quickly, especially in YA and middle school titles, narrating books like Mercy Suarez Changes Gears, Running, and Palo Santiago and the River of Tears. Frankie has become one of the great voices for a new generation of Latinx writers. And she's not confined to YA, as both nonfiction titles like The Death and Life of Ida Hernandez and the fiction title, Mexican Gothic, make clear. In fact, when I spoke with Frankie, we began with Mexican Gothic, a book I found eerily fascinating. It was fascinating to me as well. I mean, it's a really fun gothic horror. I guess we can put it in a horror category. Sure, I think you can. I thought it was scary. Oh, I didn't find it scary. I thought it's a really lush world. I just think it's so beautifully written and so immersively written in this world where you have a house that's kind of coming alive and all these classic gothic elements, but set in Mexico. I mean, I think it had a lot of cultural richness, which is always beautiful when that can be part of a story without kind of being the essence of the story or being the thing that we keep pointing to. We can just have this kind of really genre delicious writing and that cultural stuff just really informs the overall world and experience of following our protagonist, Noemi, through her journey. And reading has always been very visual for me. I came to reading before I came to acting, even though I came to acting quite young. And I had my Teddy Ruxpin, and I also had a Mickey Mouse that read out loud, which was very special. Um, (laughs) But so stories, and then later films and TV kind of saved my life and gave me this world to escape to. And I think Mexican Gothic is this really rich example of everything I loved about it. I think that's why the scary stuff doesn't get to me so much in it, because it's just part of the world. I think it's something you have to kind of go into and just surrender to this journey that you're going to be taken on. And because it was a Penguin Random House book, The Wonderful Danzit, and I had a conversation about it for their YouTube. And he said when he started listening to it, he was immediately immersed in it. And I was like, oh, good, then I've done my job because... The writing is so immersive. It's so delicious. It's such a visual book. Yes, I loved it. It's getting made for TV right now. (laughs) Oh my God, I had no idea. Yeah, yes. 
And I always like books where the house, the place, is a character in and of itself. Yes, 100%. Let's give a synopsis of the book. So Mexican Gothic is set in Mexico in the 1950s, and an upper-class Noemi is unsettled by this strange letter she gets from her newly married cousin, and she leaves Mexico City, which is very cosmopolitan, and goes to this remote estate where her cousin is now living called High Place. And it's very remote. And Noemi, who is independent and knows her mind, discovers that High Place lives in the past. Like there's mold that runs around the wallpaper and the electricity barely works. And women know their place. And in 1950s Mexico, women couldn't even vote. And fathers and husbands have a great deal of power over daughters and wives. And there's a lot more, but I'm just going to leave it there so I don't give anything away. You know, I think the cultural aspect of it as well, I think that's all the stuff it then informs. And, you know, Noemi is there kind of advocating for her cousin without giving anything away. And her cousin is the one that has really been consumed by this patriarchy, by her husband and by his father. And, you know, Noemi, she's lucky because she's of an upper echelon. And as much as her father still exerts control on her life, he is kind of supportive of her. You know, she has a lot of agency over her life. And in the beginning of the book, we get a little taste of what her life is like at home and in the norm. And it's such a juxtaposition to what it becomes when she gets to the house and she is immersed in this this microcosm of society, if you boil it down to that. The door to the office was open and Noemi did not bother knocking, breezily walking in, her high heels clacking on the hardwood floor. She brushed one of the orchids in her hair with her fingertips and sat down in the chair in front of her father's desk with a loud sigh tossing her little handbag on the floor. She also knew what she liked, and she did not like being summoned home early. I'm curious, and we can use Mexican Gothic as an example because there's quite a range of characters, and I'm curious about your process for determining the voice for any given character. You know, I think very early on when I started doing audiobooks, I learned that there were the kind of giants among us who have a preternatural ability, supernatural ability, at being able to make these really distinct, crazy character voices. And I was like, okay, if I go that way, it's going to feel like a caricature, and I never wanted anything, even when I do a children's book. I don't want it to feel performative, or as much as it is a performance, you want it to feel as grounded and as relatable and as in the skin of these people as possible. So with every character, I mean, I, I always go from the entryway of their characteristics. How are they described as how they carry themselves? You know, once we get past accents, once we get past anything that is really concrete that the author has informed us about, what are the characters saying about them? And what do they say about themselves? And how do they carry themselves in the world? And how does that affect their voice? I think going that route for me personally allows me more to play with 
when we're in different acts of the book, when we're in different places in their journey, you know, especially with the younger protagonists or a lot of the books that I've gotten to do this year, like um, Natalia Sylvester's Running, our protagonist begins not really sure of her voice yet and figuring out all of these things. And at the end, she's like this revolutionary. And how does that affect your voice? So I always try to go in from the route of character as far as personality and physicality more than I go from a place of purely what they would sound like. And what about the the narration part where you're just giving us the description, especially again with the Mexican Gothic, because it is so visual and lush and with overtones or undertones of real creepiness happening. Right. I think, you know, with a third person, it's always something that's a little trickier because you want to be able to delineate between the characters and the narration, of course. But I think I go from the place of like being a really consumed observer, putting myself in the place of the reader as much as possible so we can discover it together especially in something like Mexican Gothic where you have all those tonal shifts and you're working through a bunch of things. I don't ever want to get stuck in a place of narrating by rote or just spewing information. So there was definitely places where I asked my lovely director, did that all track? Because you're moving through these very visual, consuming, longer stanzas (laughs) Where you're like, okay, we did, I just want to make sure that you got the thread. And the only way for me to kind of, I think, relay that for a listener is to be there with them as much as possible and to keep actively discovering it. Well, this goes back to last year's The Death and Life of Ida Hernandez by Aaron Barbro Strain, which is such a brilliant, heartbreaking book. Yeah, I cried a lot recording that. It's a biography, so, you know, a very personal account. But then there's also a lot of history. And then it really is very journalistic. So all these things are happening in the midst of this very harrowing personal story. Yeah, and with the nonfiction, it's kind of the same thing to me. You know, I had a a director say to me that to make sure in a situation like that, you... You hold the point of view of the author. You are the author, especially in nonfiction, telling this story and telling their take on it. So it's not as impersonal as traditional news, especially something like Ida Hernandez. It's very, again, consuming. I mean, I still think about her. I still think about that journey. Ida's father, Raul, followed the ambulance in a battered pickup loaded with family. He pulled us close to the port of entry as the queue of cars waiting to cross allowed. Raul had seen his closest friends die in pitched gunfights, and he himself had survived torture in Mexico's most infamous political prison. He knew that when it was time to act, you did everything you could do, and then you did a little more. When he'd rushed to the hospital just after dawn that morning, he'd grabbed the deed to his house. Even in his panicked state, He knew that he'd need it as collateral for his daughter's hospital bills. When it came to such details, Raul liked to get it right. And now his girl was dying, his sunlit girl. That was one that was particularly difficult for me to create any sort of space between myself and what I was talking about. 
I think it just boils down to empathy. It just boils down to feeling what you're saying. <laughs> you know, it, that, that feels so silly and actory to say, but... But I think it's a really tricky needle to thread because at the same time, you want your feelings to, and, and I don't mean to be speaking for you, but I would imagine you want your, your feelings to be a conduit, but you don't want them to get in the way. Right. Yeah, I guess you never want to tell an audience how to feel. You don't want to feel for them. Right. But I think through your kind of discovering and processing of it in live time as you're recording or act, whatever it is you're doing, I really treat narrating as I do every other medium of acting because I think it it does all translate. It translates more for me to have a thought about what I'm reading and to be actively involved with what I'm reading out loud than it does for me to be like, my voice sounds like this now. If that's not grounded in anything, then it doesn't it doesn't have the same effect. So I think with something like Ida, because the author did have such a strong point of view and did such a stunning job, it's so hard. I've read a lot of nonfiction books about immigration policy and border stories and they're always devastating, but they can also very easily become kind of academic. And then you lose the human interest part. You lose the, this is a person like you and me and your child. And it doesn't have the same effect. I think that's why that book was so effective was because the author, at the end of the day, did such an incredible job of, like you were saying, weaving in the historical context, the kind of current events context, as well as the stories of these actual humans that have gone through these things and where all of the things that make them just the same as you and I. And so I think just being there with them and feeling for them without being saccharine about it, without being pushy about what you want anybody to feel, because at the end of the day, you just want somebody to think about it. I think that's why it was so effective. And you did a great job narrating it. Thank you. That was hard. But I learned a lot from that book. Yeah, I did too. That was a really special one. Now, you mentioned you, you started acting when you were very young. How old were you? I mean, I did my first commercial when I was a toddler, but I don't think that counts. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> but probably, like actively making the choice, too, I was probably about nine. And that's when you decided, okay, I want to do this. This is what I want. I did. I did. I There was a specific moment. I was auditioning to play Becky in Tom Sawyer. And I remember my director and theater teacher who was directing this show I did something in my audition and he just had this like effervescent giggle that made me feel so good. <laughs> and I wound up getting that part. And I think, you know, I had already loved TV and film so much my whole life since I was very little and reading and stories and could kind of always lose myself in a world and sought it out a lot. I felt a lot of lack of control as a child, not that there's any control in the pursuit of the arts or in the pursuit of acting, but the idea that like you could connect with some something like that or someone like that, I don't know, there was something about it that I was like, oh, this makes the world better. And it was fun. And I did it through grammar school. I did it professionally. And I was always running off to auditions and 
again, there was a lot of tumult at home. So I wound up taking a little break in high school so I can focus on just dance because I also danced every day of the week. And so I was like leaving school for auditions, then going to dance from four to nine. Like I just needed to kind of distill everything and simplify. And then I went back to it in college. And then I had moved out to L.A. right after college. And Where had you been living? Where, where were you raised? I, I, I'm from right outside Manhattan in Jersey, in Hudson County, New Jersey. So I had a lot of access to the arts always. And my like grammar school had an incredible arts program. And, you know, I had friends that went to LaGuardia and I wanted to go to LaGuardia. It was always very a very real thing to me. And I went, I took classes with like very young Broadway stars when I was very young. So I never had the thing of, I always hear people who aren't lucky enough to be from New York or LA of, it seems so far away. It never felt far away from me. It was a thing that people did. You know, people were artists and people were actors and people were musicians. And it was a thing that people did. And I wound up moving to L.A. after college because I knew I wanted to work more in the film and TV side than I did in the theater side. As much as I love theater, I did have a lot of friends on Broadway. And that lifestyle just seemed really hard to make a life out of having seven shows a week and all of that. I was like, I don't know how you managed that. And... (laughs) be a person and have a family and bless those people. They are the strongest athletes on the face of the earth, um, as far as I'm concerned. And go to auditions for other shows. Yes, seriously. And take dance classes and you do your vocal training and rest. I don't, I have no idea. I truly don't understand it. And I really didn't like LA when I got here and I had gotten back together with my high school boyfriend, my now husband, who was living in Maine at the time. <laughs> And I didn't like it here. Everything felt like everyone just wanted to be famous and there was no story and there was no craft. And, you know, it was just a a strange time. So I gave it up for a long time. And I actually lived in Maine for a long time. I was a a personal trainer for a long time. And we wound up, he wound up getting a job working from home. And we, he was like, I want to go to California. I want to thaw out. Let's move back. It's like, okay, let's go back. And we moved to California. And I lived here for two years before I ever touched any sort of acting. And Kyla Garcia and I, an incredible narrator, actually grew up together. And we've been friends since we were like 12 years old. And she was the one who kind of pushed me to take my first class. I took a class at Dion Institute with PJ Oakland. And I was like, oh, storytelling. And I wound up getting by the grace of Scholastic and Paul Gagne and Deb Dion and PJ and like all these incredible humans I wound up getting my first book like two weeks after that class and now you know it's maybe four years later three and a half four years later and I am very blessed and very lucky to do only acting and it's been quite a journey but I would not be here at all if it wasn't for audiobooks. Well, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about audiobooks and what you get from audiobooks that you don't get from other forms of acting, like on stage or film, etc. Oh, so many things, Joe. <laughs> you know what it is? You know, when you're on film, and don't get me wrong, especially right now, I miss being on set. I miss crafty. I miss someone bringing me a snack and doing my hair. <laughs> I miss it all. (laughs) But I did my very first voiceover when I was about 12, I think. And I was like, oh, wow, nobody's doing my makeup and nobody's touching my hair. And I came in like sweatpants and I'm so comfy and this is so much fun and silly and wonderful. And audiobooks, I think, were the perfect way back in and continue to be like a salve and a balm for my soul 
because it was the purest storytelling. It was everything I loved about storytelling in 300 pages. You're completely immersed in the world. When you're on set, when you're doing a film or doing TV, you're acting for like two to five minutes and then you cut and then you start again and then you're switching. You know, there's the piecemeal business of how you make a film or make TV. I still think it's the greatest magic on earth, but it's much different than getting to immerse yourself in a world from start to finish and kind of having your hand in all of it and seeing where it all goes. And audiobooks have also become such a kind of, um, what's the word? Quarantine has stolen all of my original words. I can read still, which is nice. Oh, I know. I know. But coming up with my own words feels more and more difficult by the day. (laughs) But Avenue, we'll say Avenue. It's become an avenue for getting to play these really incredible protagonists that, A, don't exist on film yet, especially being Latinx. These really juicy and complicated and multidimensional protagonists of all ages, especially the younger ones, I adore them, because there are these stories being written now that I would have killed for when I was a preteen and a teen and would have killed for that kind of permission and that kind of representation. And, you know, they're strong and they're complicated and they're messy and they're, they have faults and they're champions of things. And I think it gives me a way to kind of exercise my own imagination and my own joy and love of all of this in a way that it's it's harder to get on film and tv you know even the busiest actors at the end of the day you don't really spend that much time doing it and with audiobooks I am so blessed that I get to fully immerse myself in the thing I love most and that's stories and just getting to play with these really incredible characters that I'm so lucky to have bestowed upon me Well, you mentioned YA titles, and I think you're right that we see more and more YA titles now reflecting Latinx culture. It's growing exponentially, which is wonderful to see. And one of them I would love to have you talk about is Meg Medina's Mercy Suarez Changes Gears. I love that book. I love that book, too. And Meg Medina is incredible. And Mercy's one of those, like, she's a kid, but she's, you know, she's got her mess. And there's so much heart, and she loves her family so much. And I loved her family. Yeah. And I love the idea of them living in three houses in a row. Her grandparents live in one house, her aunt and nephew live in another, and Mercy and her immediate family live in the third, and they're just there in a row. Yeah. And that's kind of how I grew up. And I grew up, you know, at one point I moved literally five minutes away from my grandparents after we'd lived in a two-family house for most of my life. And I sobbed. Like, you would have thought I was being moved to Japan. I was being moved to five minutes away. (laughs) Like, they were the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. And I very much had a relationship with my grandmother like she has with her grandfather. And I think... That's a thing of Latinx culture, especially, too, that you get raised by your community and by your whole family. And I loved that, like, not everything is saccharine about her and not everything is 
a quote unquote good girl all of the time, which is the messaging that especially as Latinos, we get our whole lives. You know, we're mostly Catholic and we're very put in this little box of this is how you're a good little girl. And to have a character like Mercy, who's so young and she has her faults and she's learning as she goes, but there's so much love and there's so much sweetness and it's just so fun. And I think that, like I said, books and movies, all of that, it really raised me. It really informed my world and it informed how I thought about everything, but I didn't see myself reflected in that way or myself given permission in that way that I think is just super special. Lolo's new glasses are round and enormous, but they seem to have cheered him up. He got them this morning with the Ines, who's still mad that she had to get time off work again to take him. It was Bobby's turn to drive Lolo to an appointment, she claims, which is one of their favorite sibling arguments. I don't get it. If it were up to me, I'd take off every chance I got to hang out with Lolo. But with them, it's always a fight. Anyway, the thick lenses magnify Lolo's eyes, so they look really big and green from some angles. You like them? He asks. His voice sounds so peppy that I don't have the heart to say the truth. Circles are my favorite shape, I say. Your family is from Cuba, too, as, as yes. was Mercy's. Yeah. As was Mercy's, yeah. It's always special to be able to do... The Cuban story specifically. I mean, all cultures do. And I think the the Latin diaspora is kind of... I love when something is very specific because I think the specific is universal. Yes, absolutely. Um, the more specific it is, the more universal it is. It's yes. the paradox of art. Yes, 100%. And I think people get scared of that. And I think if you can just let it be specific without having to comment on the specificity or make a big deal it just is what it is because this is who they are then we see our connective tissue in such a beautiful way and how is it when you approach a young girl as a reader does something change at all for you that's such a good question i mean you're less grounded right i mean i think it has to do with the book of course always but i think with something like mercy with Taylor Mejia's Paula Santiago and the River of Tears. Again, she's another one that they have so much, as we all do at that age, and questions and thoughts, and you kind of get told to just be good and to just behave and keep it going. Then you wind up in your 30s and trying to figure it out. <laughs> and I think there's a little bit of, like, awe and curiosity that kids have that I try to stay really curious with them about their world. I don't think there's anything more than that than changes. Not that adults aren't curious, but nothing is so finite. You know, they're figuring everything out. So there's just a little bit more wonder. And there's, again, at the end of the day, I have to just, I have to give it up to the writers. I mean, I'm the luckiest. These writers do such a beautiful job of creating the inner world of these characters. And it just, it makes my job so easy to just kind of go there with them and to kind of surrender to their journey. If the author is living like in the case of Meg Medina, do you try to contact them to talk to them before you record? It always, it's always different. It varies case by case basis. Natalia, Sylvester and I have developed a deep friendship and um, 
I adore her and she's someone who I've worked with twice now, which I'm the luckiest to get to say her words twice. I always want to do right by the author. I feel like once the book is out, I usually wind up having a conversation with the author more often unless there's particulars that we want to make sure we're on the same page about, be it pronunciations or tonal questions or questions about character. Once the book is out, we often wind up communicating and to hear that an author is happy that's who I feel the most responsibility to because I feel like they trusted me with their baby. I mean, authors labor for so long over these things that by the time it gets my in my hands, it's perfect as far as I'm concerned. And I just want to do it justice. I want them to feel like they made a good choice. So, yeah, it always varies. I don't we Megan Dye didn't speak before Mercy. I've talked to her since and she's just brilliant. They do such a beautiful job of creating these worlds that oftentimes there's not that much to talk about because it's right there for you to kind of play detective with and investigate and just bring to life. How do you how do you choose what projects to take on as a narrator? You know, I again, I think I'm just the luckiest. I may have turned down one particularly raunchy pseudonym situation. Um, Beyond that, yeah, I think, you know. I get really beautiful opportunities. If I can work it into my schedule to a fault, I will say yes. I will never not feel honored that someone chooses to trust me with their baby. (laughs) On the opposite side of it, I had been, everybody had been kind of sending me this book that was coming out called A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow. And we started following each other on Twitter and because, you know, the publishing world is big on Twitter (laughs) and especially the Latinx authors, it's a really beautiful group of human beings that I'm so proud to work with. So everybody was kind of throwing this my way. And eventually my agent actually was like, hey, Simon and Schuster reached out about doing this. And I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) I've been sitting around wondering who was going to do this for months. (laughs) And I got to do it. So, I mean, it's I feel like it's kind of the opposite where I kind of fangirl over authors and see what they're working on. And I'm like, oh, please, 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 (laughs) please. You know, and finally, let's say you had a, a friend who's an actor who was thinking about audiobooks. What advice would you give? What What do you think the attributes are that you need to bring to the table to be a, a good interpreter of somebody else's words like that? You know, I think actors, hopefully, all have that kind of empathetic gene because I think you really need to be able to fully immerse yourself into something. For me, I know that I do my best work when I can really feel it and get into it. And I think it takes a lot of stamina. It's a really special kind of person because you do need a kind of stamina that you don't necessarily need for something else. I think that's why a lot of theater actors do really well as narrators. You got to love it. You have to love reading. You have to love the kind of minutia that goes into it. I think there's a lot of, especially right now, and I understand that there's a lot of people who want to get into it because it feels like an easy work from home job. And that makes me kind of sad because it's an art in and of itself. I know plenty of actors that have tried narrating and they're like, I cannot do it. A, I sound like a robot. B, I'm exhausted. <laughs> like, And C, it's really hard. It's hard. It's hard and it's lonely and it's Whenever I get to work, especially right now with a director over Zoom, I'm like, yes, please (laughs) send me anyone to tell me anything. (laughs) Just I need some sort of human contact, human feedback. 
It's definitely hard. I think it's a really beautiful thing to explore if you're going to love it. But I feel like that about acting. I had a teacher really early on. I must have been like 18. Tell me, if you can see yourself doing anything else, then do that. And I think I feel that way, especially about narrating. Because if you start to get bored and if you start to kind of drop out, your reader is going to hear that. That's going to affect the whole story. You have to stay so engaged. And we all fight really hard and caffeinate really hard to make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> and again, I left LA because of a, I felt a lack of craft. I don't feel that anymore. I have an incredible community of artists and actors and creators and writers and authors and narrators who do love this so deeply. And I think you have to love it. I think you have to look at it as an art. I think you have to train and I think you have to be able to fully immerse yourself and to fully be present and to fully engage and to be ready for the physical aspect of it because it's not like anything else. It's not like recording a voiceover commercial, which we all love doing, but you're in the studio for 10 minutes and you get a nice payday. And, you know, this requires prepping and recording and pickups. And there's so many kind of moving parts that I think just treat it with the respect that it deserves. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Frankie, thank you. And thank you for all Yay. these books that you've narrated that I've just loved. Oh, really. Joe, thank you. It was really oh, such a pleasure. God, and I really enjoyed our conversation. God, that warms my heart. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for everything you guys do. You guys are the biggest champions of narrators. And I just love me some audiophile. <laughs> That was actor Frankie Corzo. She's narrated many books, including The Death and Life of Ida Hernandez, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears, and Mexican Gothic, which is one of Audiophile Magazine's picks for Best Of in 2020. You can check out audiophilemagazine.com to get all our picks for the Best Of in 2020. This has been a special edition of Behind the Mic. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.